Ribbit. Ribbit. <clears throat> Sorry, that's the uh, the frog in my throat. Welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Joining me today, as always, is my good friend Walker Howell. And today we have not one Walker, but two very special guests on the show. Go ahead and welcome the sh- to the show Dr. Joe DeWeese and Dr. Justin Rogers. Go ahead and introduce yourself, fellas. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. My name is Joe DeWeese. I'm professor of biochemistry and director of undergraduate research here at Freed Hardman University. Been back here since uh, July of 2021. Uh, been excited to get to work with my good friend, Dr. Justin Rogers. Yeah, I'm Justin Rogers. I'm dean of the College of Biblical Studies and professor of Bible and Judaic Studies here at Freed Hardman, where I have worked since 2010. And we're very thankful to have these guys on the show. Uh, Justin Rogers has come on the show before to help us talk about grief. And so you, if you want to check out that episode after this one, go ahead and do that. Uh, it was a very, very good episode. And we're very thankful to have Dr. DeWeese on the show for the first time. Uh, you guys don't know this, but this is actually our second take recording this. The first one didn't save, so we're hoping that this one saves. Uh, <laughs> but we're very, very thankful for Dr. Rogers and Dr. DeWeese uh, coming out here on finals week of all times to to record with us again. Uh, so we're very, very fa- thankful to have them on the show. And we're especially thankful to have them on the show because of what they're going to be talking about. And I say they because they're the experts here. Uh, Walker and I, we're not the expert. But uh, they're here to talk about the Bible and science. As you heard them say, one of them is a, a professor of biblical studies and one of them is a professor of biochemistry. And so they're here today to help us understand if the Bible and science can work together. And, and some people will look at this question and they'll say, well, yeah, automatically, yes, absolutely. But other people will look at this question and say, there's no way. There's not a chance in the world that the Bible and science can work together. Those two things are completely separate, completely individual of each other. And so there's this conflict here. Does the Bible and the science agree? Does the Bible and the science work together to, uh, to form one narrative, or is it two different things? And, and really... Uh, we've been talking about this before the, uh, the show started. It it really isn't a conflict unless you have a difference of perspective first. Mm-hmm. That's right, and it, it comes down to um, kind of a worldview or a paradigm question, as Dr. Rogers and I like to frame it, and uh, it comes down to an understanding of, you know, what is the basis of your interpretation of reality and the world around you? Um, and I, when I talk about this, I like to think of it as, uh, the lenses of glasses, and depending upon the lenses that you wear, you can interpret things uh, differently. And so if you come at the world with particular uh, assumptions and presuppositions about uh, where it came from, why it exists, um, the purpose of life, etc., um, you can come to various conclusions about, um, about life and about it's either uh, purposefulness or purposelessness. So uh, I know Dr. Rogers likes to frame this uh, in the context of, of Genesis, and I think that's appropriate um, as we think about this question, Bible and science. We kind of have to go back to the beginning and think about, you know, why did God even do this uh, to begin with, right? Why did he create us, and how does uh, Genesis help us understand something about that? Yeah, one of the most consequential books written in the 20th century was Thomas Kuhn's uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he introduced the concept of paradigms. and. Uh, the very idea that uh, information is interpreted along presuppositional lines. And so the best thing that researchers can do is is admit where our starting points are, what we're assuming to be true uh, before we ever present our research. And 
Uh, what happens often with science is science operates entirely by a naturalistic paradigm. Mm -hmm. That is to say where uh, everything that exists can be explained by natural means and processes. Well, well, that presupposition disallows the existence of God altogether. So when people say, uh, does the Bible and science conflict with each other? Well, it depends on what your presuppositions are. If you start with that naturalistic paradigm, there's no room for God. God is not involved in the explanatory model. So yeah, it's going to have some conflicts. But if you adopt a view of science that does accommodate God, then I think that it can be a very healthy conversation yeah. that we can have about how science helps build our faith in God and the intricacies of the created world. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, to, to back up just a step there, you know, you mentioned science. It's, it's interesting. Our, our perception is that science requires naturalism. And that's the reality is that's a particular approach to science, right? That's, that's this idea of... Uh, metaphysical naturalism being imposed upon science, the idea that there is no supernatural, there's nothing beyond what we consider the natural, and therefore everything that exists has to be explained in physical causes and forces. And so you might call it materialism, which is not the same materialism that the preacher preached about on Sunday, right? <laughs> you might call it like physicalism or materialism or naturalism, but it's this idea that there is no supernatural. There's not anything beyond the physical. Um, in science, we use uh, a, a process we call methodological naturalism to approach scientific questions and, and research things. And it works because, in general, when I go in the laboratory and set up an experiment, I'm not anticipating or expecting that God is somehow intervening in that. I'm, he's allowing the laws that he established to operate, and I'm observing those and, and understanding the results based upon those. Um, but that assumption that God always acts in that way all throughout history is not necessarily warranted by the evidence. Yeah, and this is really a big problem when we talk about the origins of the universe, right? I mean, this right. is the, 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 the place where the rubber meets the road. If, if I adopt a posture that says, I know that material existed and that's all that can exist, then in the beginning... I have to explain how matter created itself, right. whereas if I have a more of a biblical worldview, I recognize there is a supernatural force that exists outside of nature and is the prime cause of nature, and that, that makes a huge difference in how I approach life Absolutely. generally. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If I, if I allow Genesis to serve as the basis of that, that's, that's really critical. And so we brought to Isaiah these questions um, that, that we think are kind of at the core of this, uh, the origin of the universe being the first, and the others being things like the origin of life, uh, the diversification of life, uh, and the origin of humanity. Um, and that, that first question of the origin of the universe, is it's a big deal. Like, yeah. Where did all of this come from? And we can't just kind of brush it away or you know, explain it away as some, some cosmic accident, because there was no cosmos to have an accident <laughs> right before all of this existed. Um, and I think it's pretty clear... Um, evidence is pretty clear that the universe is not eternal. Um, much of what we see in operation appears to be wearing down, and so there's, there are uh, laws of nature that indicate this, this thing hasn't lasted forever, so it had a beginning, and the question is, how did it begin? So. Yeah, and I think that curiosity in that question has always been fundamental to humanity. That's why Genesis, in the very first chapter of the book, addresses where this stuff all came from, in the beginning God. 
And uh, whenever we we take this scientific naturalism, especially with regard to uh, the Big Bang or whatever other kind of theory of, of uh, naturalistic mm-hmm. uh, processes began at all, one, one of the things that uh, we end up doing is we kind of do injustice to the plain sense of Scripture. So people, they take this model and they say, well, science says this. And of course, by science, they mean science that excludes God by its very nature, right? So science says that the the earth has to be this many years old, like 14 billion years old, and or the universe does, and, and all of this stuff. And so they come up with ways of trying to fit more time into Genesis, or really the most convenient thing is just to say Genesis is a myth, and so you can't trust it. It's not really history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just sort of a story that tells us some kind of moral tale about the creation of humanity. It doesn't really give us any kind of, um, any kind of, of information about the origins of the world. And so people interpret Hebrew words in ways that are unnatural, ways that they've never been interpreted, like a day doesn't really mean a day, and uh, there are gaps in time in Genesis 1, a theory that was unknown in biblical interpretation until this naturalistic science started to assert itself. And so I, I think that the tension people feel, especially about the age of the earth and the origins of the earth, when we compare science to Scripture, that, that's a, a big issue in the modern world, and there are ways around it if we accept a view of science that accommodates God rather than one that by its nature excludes him. Yeah, that's, no, that's a great point. And, um, you know, when we think about the origin of the universe, if we if we only allow for naturalistic options, um, then you're, you're stuck probably with some scenario that, that has untold vast amounts of time, billions and billions of years, it's really hard for us to fathom. We say yeah. that, you know, 13.6 billion years or 4 billion years or whatever. We put these numbers out there as the age of the universe or the age of the earth and so forth as if they're somehow tangible to us. Like, we have no conception of how long that really is. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's false. It just says, I, I don't, I think we put those numbers out there sometimes thinking, well, this, yeah, this will make it work. And I think that's that's a challenge we have to consider those of us from a, a uh, Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, have to consider that the record is spoken, and God has, God has given us information, not a textbook again, but, but has given us information about what he did uh, to create this universe, and that he is the creator of it. Um, and as we look, you know, we've got the James Webb Space Telescope out there that is looking deep out, deeper out into space than we've ever seen before, and what we continue to see are... Uh, fully formed, fully functioning galaxies further out than we ever imagined. Uh, and that's inconsistent at the moment with the current Big Bang Theory concepts that are out there. There's multiple, uh, obviously, kind of multiple versions of the Big Bang, but these these observations, time and again, have been inconsistent with that. So they're having to recalculate, reconfigure, but yet these are consistent with a biblical worldview that says that God stretched out the heavens, right? Created it, stretched out, it was all there, right? Uh, sun, moon, stars uh, on day four. So, you know, something for us to consider, like, that's that's a big deal. One of the things that is very different from a biblical worldview and from this naturalistic scientific worldview is 
the assumption that change happens very, very slowly over a vast That's stretch right. of time. That's right. And what we see in the Bible is things happen really quickly. That's I right. mean, suddenly, right? God yeah. spoke and just light appeared. It didn't have to travel from some distant light source. It was there, right. available, visible in whatever right. sense, you know, right. we imagine visibility on day That's one. Right. But it's it's one of those things that it's fundamentally different with what the Bible says and what naturalistic science assumes, and the observations that are now being made give more credibility to maybe things don't take quite as long as the previous model suggested. So the Earth may not, or the universe, I keep saying the Earth, the universe may not need to be as old That's right. as we have thought. Yeah, I think, I think there's, um, and there are um, young Earth creationist astronomers that have written and spoken on this, both to explain things like, how could distant starlight get here in relatively short order? There's some physics solutions that I don't pretend to understand, <laughs> but there are some physics solutions to that that have been offered from a creationist uh, worldview. So I think that's important to consider that yep. um, that those options are out there, that those are realities that, that hey, you know, we don't have to just give in to this Big Bang model as the only explanation. Uh, there are other alternatives out there that may actually explain the evidence better um, than the current models, and I think that's that's something to get excited about. Yeah, that's a great point, because I think a lot of people just assume that all scientists that exist, <laughs> they, right. they're working with this other model that very much presents a threat to believing the Bible, but there are a number of scientists mm -hmm. who have written books that are over my head, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, very, right. very scientifically erudite, and these are, are people with legitimate credentials who yeah. do real research, but they are also Christians who believe the Bible, and they've come up with alternative explanations, That's often right. pioneering those explanations. Right. Um, we don't have the luxury for those of us who believe in the biblical version of creation as scientists mm -hmm. to work within this community of, of tens of thousands of scholars who are helping us right. reach a solution. There are just maybe a few thousand who right. are working on these questions, and you're one of those well, people. That's a great point, and and you're exactly right. It's the the it, it's out there if you look for it, but uh, a lot of people don't know where to look sometimes. But people like Dr. Russ Humphreys, Dr. Danny Faulkner, um, and Dr. John Hartnett. Those are just three examples of physicists who have offered solutions to the starlight time problem. Now, none of these are perfect. Obviously, in in the physics world, everything is based on models. And models get refined, and, and some of them get cast out and rewritten. Uh, but these guys have proposed different models in their books and in their uh, journal articles um, and, you know, have, have been open to critical feedback on those types of things. And so I think that's an important part of the scientific process. So, you know, that's, that's pretty exciting to me to think about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we think about the origin of the universe, uh, as you guys mentioned, this is a, a big deal, mm -hmm. right? We, we had to come from somewhere, right? right? It, it's not like all the things around us in the world just were, have always been here, right? Like you said, Dr. DeWeese, it's, it's clear that this world is not meant to last forever. and It had to have some sort of beginning. And so really, like we've been talking about, where you believe we came from, whether it was from nothing or whether it was from God, really defines how you look at the rest of these questions and really every other scientific question in general. All right, whatever presupposition you're starting with, if there is a God or if there isn't a God, that defines how you answer the rest of these questions. Like, for instance, the origin of life, if we th think about the biblical point of view, it said that God breathed life into mankind. 
that God made us and then breathed life into us that we would not be able to live without him, mm-hmm. uh, without him creating us in the way that we were made so that we could continue to function with our lungs and our hearts and our veins and our muscles and all the other things that we have in our bodies that make us so perfectly made. Uh, I think about Psalm 139, how, how David praises God for, for how wonderful his works are and how intricate uh, God was when he made David and how, how God made David perfectly down to the tiniest little detail. And of course, that's not just David that David's talking about there. Uh, David was just like me and you, right? He was a person. He walked on two legs. He put his pants on one leg at a time, right? Mm-hmm. If he wore pants. Well, yeah. right. If he wore <laughs> pants, yeah. yeah. And so when we think about the origin of life, again, from a biblical point of view, we can say we were created intentionally. We were created perfectly. We were created exactly how we needed to be not just as a species, but as individuals. If we take out God, if we take God out of the equation, then the origin of life becomes a lot less meaningful. The origin of life becomes something that just kind of happened. There's no real explanation for it. There's no real meaning behind it. It just kind of happened. We're just kind of here. And that defeats the purpose and the plan that David talks about there in that Psalm that God had for his life when he said that his days was, were set before him from the very beginning of time, that God knew what was going to happen to David from the very beginning of time. Yeah, you know, um, something that I've appreciated about getting to teach with Dr. Rogers, we, we teach a Bible and science course here at Freed Hardeman, and um, I've learned so much about the language of, well, Hebrew language in general, but but just the language of Genesis and the meaning of words. Mm. And one of the things I appreciate that you have pointed out in that class is as you read through these narratives, there there's there's meaning behind the meaning, right? There's the narrative, <laughs> yeah. but then there's, there's meaning implicit in the names that God gives to various things and the th- way he calls them. And uh, that really helped me think about, okay, when, when God did this, he instilled purpose on every level here, and it wasn't, it wasn't haphazard. Um, this is, you know, very different from ancient Near East uh, literature and some of these other things where it's, you know, gods that are, like, murdering each other and then, you know, uh, committing all kinds of acts in order to create different races of creatures. But, you know, this is a very purposeful, intentional, and, and it really elevates the creation in a different way uh, when you read it, understanding what those words mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is the the naturalistic scientific view, which is like, well, humanity is an evolutionary accident. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's the ancient Near Eastern sort of cosmological view that uh, humanity is a nuisance, <laughs> you know, there's a, because the gods are just irritated with them all the time. And, and really, that's sort of the view of the gods in ancient religion, that uh, we have to keep them happy because they're always irritated. They're like grumpy old men, right? And, uh, and occasionally grumpy old women. And so we have to appease them through sacrifice and ritual and all of that. And we have a completely different presentation in the Bible. We have a God who deeply cares about creation, who takes his time to give order and purpose to everything that exists. And to what Isaiah was saying about the creation of humanity, I mean, God really slows down and takes his time with humanity, whether it's in chapter 1 of Genesis where man and and woman are created in the image of God, whatever in the world that means, it means that they have something that nothing else has, right? Like, I think that if that's the only thing we know about the image of God, that's pretty good. And then in chapter 2, whenever he breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life, there is a, a personal, if 
we're talking about God, so I hesitate to say physical, but there there is a contact there that exists between God and the creation of humanity. There is clearly a special nature to that creation. And uh, while all creation is precious, humanity is just a little bit extra, mm-hmm. and they have a divine fragment within them somehow that gets passed on, and in that image of God theme gets worked out in a variety of ways, anthropological, soteriological, etc. So yeah, it's a very different view than what you find in other world literature and what you find in modern naturalism. Absolutely. So to kind of sum up this, this first question on the origin of the universe, just kind of bring it back together here. You know, as we, as we look at the narrative of Scripture and we realize it tells a very different story than the Big Bang narrative uh, and the common, you know, uh, narrative of our day, so to speak, um, there are ways to look at the evidence around us from a biblical perspective uh, and come to some understanding about how it operates, how it works, and maybe a little bit about how it came to be. Um, obviously, origins questions are difficult. God did not give us precise information on exactly how he did it, and so we do have to do it. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit of detective work. Yeah. We're having to look back in history and see what does it look like happened. Um, and if we allow for, as Dr. Rogers pointed out, uh, you know, supernatural events, things that would be beyond the basic laws of chemistry and physics, then we can come to some very different conclusions about how old the universe is and how it formed and so forth. Uh, and that's that's what we propose is, is a reasonable understanding of the origin of the universe is to say, let's take Scripture, let's bring it together with our understanding of, of science, and let's use those together to come to some understanding about where we came from. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And we also recognize that while the Bible is not a scientific textbook, and it really couldn't have been because if the Bible were written in the scientific language of today, it would have been unintelligible to its first readers. And if it were written in the scientific language of its first readers, it would be laughably sophomoric today, right? So the Bible speaks very generally about science, but everything it says is true. And I think that goes to the wisdom of the biblical authors, how they wrote in such a way that everything they said would be true and understandable to all generations throughout time, including our own. Which is really powerful. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's a really, really interesting point. You know, when we look at some of the, the scientific discoveries that have been made in recent years, and we can trace them back to the Bible, whether it's things like biology or archaeology or anything, uh, you know, surrounding science in any particular field, we can look back and say, oh, wow, that was mentioned way back here in Leviticus or in Isaiah or something like that. And now we can actually see what God was talking about in that passage. Like you said, he didn't give a, a whole lot of detail there because the people who was the Bible was originally intended for wouldn't have understood it, right? Those, those ancient Israelites or those, those first century Christians, they wouldn't have understood all of the different things that we understand now, whether it be about medicine or, or botany or, or whatever the case may be. They weren't at the level where they could understand what God was saying yet. And so he gave them laws or he gave them uh, rules to protect them from certain things. Uh, That's why they weren't allowed to eat certain kinds of meat because they didn't know that they were supposed to cook it a certain way in order to get all the disease out of it, in order to make, make it safe for consumption. Now we understand 
that God put those laws in place for a reason. Uh, they weren't binding or restrictive, but they were protective. And I think when we look at the Bible that way, as, as, and we remember that it wasn't written in the 21st century, that it was written thousands of years ago, we can understand, again, that God, he didn't give his original audience all the details, but he placed things in the scriptures that we can go back and look at now and say, oh, wow, I see what he's talking about now. Now that we have the ability of hindsight, the people there didn't have hindsight. They were living in the moment. But we're able to look back through history and say, wow, the Bible pointed this out, and this was written thousands of years before we as, a, uh, as, as humanity figured out what God was saying here. So it wasn't the fact that these biblical authors were so smart they had everything figured out. It was the fact that God gave them enough wisdom and enough knowledge to know this is what I need to write down. And we can go back and look and, uh, and marvel at God's wisdom and his, and his power that he revealed in some slight ways to those ancient authors. Yeah, at the same time, I would say that there is a great deal of sophistication among ancient peoples. Uh, there are lots of things that they did in ways that we cannot replicate today, even with technology and engineering. Uh, it's pretty remarkable when you look at things like the pyramids, and we today still don't know exactly how they built them and how they laid them out so perfectly into last, uh, the way in which Greek temples were constructed with the stonework so perfectly symmetrical, even from the point of view of perspective. If you are standing on the ground looking up at these columns, they appear to be straight, but in fact they're not. And so there's this illusion that they accounted for uh, in their construction. People don't do that today, right? I mean, it's like there there is a sense in which we are more sophisticated and knowledgeable today, but there's also a sense in which they had a lot of stuff really figured out. I think there's a narrative out there, uh, it, it probably started in like early 20th century anthropology, that the further you go back in time, the dumber people get, right? And that's still part of kind of the evolutionary story, right? That we have become more and more sophisticated and intelligent. But what we see when we look into the deep past is that sometimes people are quite intelligent and quite sophisticated, and we still can't figure out how they were able to do the things that they do so I, I wonder if some of these things that are in the Bible, you know, like the paths in the seas and those kinds of things, if those are not things that were deposited and not understood until modern times, or if they were understood, that understanding was lost, and then they were rediscovered in modern times. Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was thinking along the same lines uh, that sometimes we look at ancient peoples as primitive or something, and I think that's an evolutionary, yeah. you know, uh, that thinking is evolutionary uh, originated. Um, it's not necessarily what we see in Scripture. And so they did a lot of amazing things. You know, Noah built a massive ship yeah. that we, you know, it, it strains our mind to think how did he build something that could float for a year, you know, or however long it was actually, you know, afloat um, and keep all of those creatures alive along with his family. It's just amazing to think about the engineering required for that. Uh, but clearly, you know, God enabled him to know or to understand how to do that. And that's, uh, it is a bit beyond us to think about, you know, yeah. where, where did that, and was some of that knowledge lost? I think that's a fair question because it appears that there are things that they understood better than we realize. But, you know, and it's even simple things, you know, Leviticus gives uh, laws about how to make soap, you know, more or less. And that's pretty pretty amazing. Then when you start looking at the ingredients, you realize, okay, well, that's got some antiseptic properties. And, you know, so there, there are things to that that you, we, we look back and we realize, okay, there's, 
this makes sense now that we can see and understand uh, what was going on there. So that's great. Um, appreciate that. Yeah, and I appreciate you guys as well bringing that up. You know, I think that is a, a flaw in our thinking that we sometimes fall victim to is assuming that we're the smartest generation that's ever been here. And, uh, you that know, scientific triumphalism, right? Mm -hmm. That we're always on the verge of some groundbreaking discovery that's going to change the world and make us all better. And the further you go back and past, the further they were from that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's this sort of linear approach to history and the inevitable conquest of humanity over ignorance. Not true. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, even if we just look at the generation around us today, I mean, we're questioning things now that have never been questioned. I mean, we have we have people who don't understand, you know, what males and females are anymore, uh, just to, to bring up an example. And so to say that or to make the claim that we're the smartest generation who has ever lived, uh, that's like Dr. DeWeese and Dr. Rogers have pointed out, that's kind of evolutionary thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's also very arrogant to assume mm -hmm. that we're the smartest generation to, that it's ever lived. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for us to, to remember that uh, God gave wisdom to these ancient peoples, uh, like, like he mentioned with the pyramids or with the Greek temples or, or any other you know, discovery like that that we can find and we can go back and you know, look at the, the seven ancient wonders of the world, right? How in the world did they build the Great Wall of China? I don't know. Right, must have, you know, they must have taken a lot of time to do that. Right, a lot of planning, a lot of forethought, a lot of preparation to build something as amazing as the Hanging Gardens in Babylon or something like that. And so, it's important for us to to remember that humans have always had wisdom because we are made in the image of God. Right, God gave us that wisdom. He taught us what was right and what was wrong. He taught us how to do different things, and He instilled that wisdom in us. And again, that's coming from the presupposition that God exists and that God made us in the, in the way that Genesis says he did. Uh, but if we look at life, we look at uh, the, the world around us without that presupposition, we look at it from the presupposition that God doesn't exist and that we were an accident, how did we get so much wisdom? Where, where did we discover how to build things like the pyramids or like the Greek temples? Where, where did that information come from if not from the great designer? So in thinking about this, Isaiah, you know, as we think about science and scripture, I just want to make the point that we try to be careful to um, understand kind of an order of interpretation. In other words, I know a lot of folks who are people of faith who happen to be scientists that tend to put science above scripture in terms of their interpretation of the world and allow for common scientific interpretations to kind of prevail and then fit scripture into that framework. Um, uh, I prefer to take a different view where, uh, and I think Dr. Rogers and I agree on this, that scripture takes precedent here and we try to interpret the world in light of that. Now, again, it's not a textbook on science, so there are a lot of things that we can't answer. And even though there are some exciting things in scripture that kind of point toward, um, hey, maybe that's kind of information they wouldn't have otherwise known, um, I try not to overemphasize that uh, and try to really encourage um, you know, folks to, to take that, that biblical framework and then use that to interpret the things we see around us, whether it's, you know, looking at rocks and understanding, uh, you know, geology from a, a global flood perspective, or as we'll talk about in a minute, looking at genetics from a created kind perspective and what that, how that changes, how we view uh, various things in science. So our, our second topic there was 
focused on this idea of, um, you know, where did life come from? How did it arise? And this is a huge, huge problem and a huge question for those who don't believe in a designer, because we have no real example of where life just arises on its own, as was pointed out earlier. So mm. it's really important for us to, to look at that and recognize there's a signature here that indicates that life is designed and it's designed in such a way that all of the parts and pieces have to be there working together for it to operate, mm -hmm. which is, which is by the way, a, a key example of how it looks like an engineered system, right? Engineered systems have inner working parts that all have to be there together, working together for the, for the system to operate. And that's what we see in life uh, is that it's made of multiple different components that all have to kind of be there together. Um, and so this idea of the origin of life, uh, I think, is a, is a major issue that, that we need to stand proudly on God's word here and say, look, God's word gives us, uh, you know, at least some idea of the directionality here rather than, hey, we, you know, life just happened. It just popped into existence, which is not very satisfying. Yeah. And I, I think as far as the origin of life is concerned, there seems to be a biblical difference between the origin of, let's say, plant and animal life and the origin of human life. And Isaiah, this goes back to something you were saying earlier, that theology really informs anthropology, that whenever the Bible talks about the creation of humanity, it sort of distinguishes it as different from the creation of other things. And I think that is uh, God's way of saying, hey, you, you guys, you human beings are just different. Uh, I created you with something that uh, the rest of creation doesn't have, and therefore I have higher expectations for you and your behavior and your ethics and and those kinds of things. And, and so evolution can't get you that, right? right? Like we're just the latest thing that got spit out of the, the machine, <laughs> right? And, and so human life has no more value from an ethical evolutionary perspective than plant life or uh, unless we go with some this nebulous common consent thing. Well, our life matters more because we agree it matters more. Oh, well, okay. But the Bible does give us a reason to think of humanity as sort of the crown of creation, as it mm -hmm. was once put. And I think that's powerful as far as it gives us an ethics, not just an origin story, but an ethical story as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's a key question. Um, you know, I have some friends, some scientist friends of mine who wrote a book um, just within the last couple of years uh, called The Stairway to Life. Uh, Dr. Rob Sadler and Dr. Change Tan, um, he's a... Uh, engineer and designs medical devices, um, Harvard, MIT graduate uh, trained. Uh, she's a molecular biologist, incredibly brilliant. And basically what they did is they said, if we look at the, the molecular details, what would it take to make a living cell? And they, they looked at it as a progressive set of steps. Uh, and so they kind of paint the picture of the staircase and okay, you have to have this and then you have to have this. And then, and it's this progressive, uh, staircase where each step gets more and more difficult. And that's um, one cell. Yeah. And that's just, yeah, that's just to, to start the process, so to speak. And so, um, you know, they point out that really the, the most, uh, you know, common sense way to look at this is that this system was all designed together for all these parts and pieces to operate together. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, it, it makes logical sense, but it goes against the common paradigm. And so that's why it's mostly rejected by, uh, folks that disagree with us. Yeah, you know, just just talking about you know, the the complexities of of creation and and you know just how amazing it is. Like we've been talking about these these tiny intricate details. Right? I mean, just just looking at DNA mm -hmm. uh, 
and how, you know how how our DNA as as humans and and even the DNA of, of you know animals or plants or anything like that how it's so uniquely designed and created and, and stitched together really uh, I think is a, a good way of putting it so you know just thinking about how much DNA that we have in our system alone like you were talking about how how difficult it is just to create one cell according to something that I uh, I'm looking at right now from the uh, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences there's a there's 3.2 billion base pairs or sets of genetic letters that make up the human genome that's a, a lot <laughs> it is a lot yeah so if we if we took the DNA from one of your cells and we were able to stretch it out in the end be about six feet worth of DNA in wow. each cell of your body. And um, that's that's pretty amazing. And if you do the math on 3.2 billion base pairs, which is just one copy, and you have two copies of the genome in each of your cells other than your germ cells, but most of your body cells have two copies, one from mom, one from dad. So that's over 6 billion base pairs of information. So think of that as 6 billion letters, right? Wow. So do the do that search at some point and ask, uh, you know, your favorite search engine, how many pages would it take to write out six billion base pairs? We did an exercise like this in a class a little while back, and we looked at one gene, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the exact length of the gene. It was, it was in the tens of thousands of nucleotides, but it was going to be 60 pages just to print out the coding wow. sequence of that particular gene. And uh, so I divided the pages among this, this class that we had at the time, and I had them look for one mistake in the sequence mm. and try to find that one mistake. It was, it was a pretty interesting exercise. So mm. it's amazing the information content in us um, and it, it doesn't assemble on its own. Okay, this, yeah. this stuff doesn't come together. If we go over to the lab across campus, um, stuff breaks down over time. If we don't put it in the freezer, if we don't put it in the right, you know, um, buffers, things like that, it's gonna break down. And that's an important thing for us to, to recognize that life has to be preserved um, in order to continue. It doesn't just make itself and develop, you know, out of a bubbling pond. Mm. Not only does it have to be preserved to continue, but it had to have that start in the, in the first right. place, right? Yeah. And that's not something that we could have done on our own. No. And there's not really an explanation that we have for it other than this information was given by a designer, right? That's right. You know, information doesn't just come from nothing. That's right. I, I've heard the argument used before that you know, if you locked a blank piece of paper in a safe, it's not going to get written on, <laughs> right? No, information doesn't come from nothing. Knowledge right. doesn't come from nothing. It had to come from someone or something that has that information or that knowledge. That's right. right? That's why we have guests on the show to provide <laughs> information that Walker and I aren't aware of, you know? Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, thinking about tying that in with this next question, you know, when we think about the origin of life, we also think about the origin of different life forms. And one of the, I think, key distinctives of the Genesis narrative is this idea that uh, throughout a, a progression of days, God progressively creates these different creatures. Mm -hmm. um, and it appears to indicate that they have uh, some differences among them because they were created according to their their kind or their type. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I don't know, Dr. Rogers, if you want to comment on that, but that's just, to me, a, a really distinctive feature of this narrative versus maybe other creation ideas and narratives is this thought of God progressively creating different creatures. And then we'll talk about mankind here in a minute, because you're right, that's a whole, it's almost like he took yeah. another step and said, okay, now I'm ready to make this other. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you look at Genesis 1, and it seems that almost everything is set up to put humanity in the prime position. 
And so the world being created for human beings is a very unusual concept in ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. In fact, mo most of the time what you get in these other accounts is some kind of conflict that forms the basis of creation. And so like the best one probably is uh, the Babylonian version of the Enuma Elish where Marduk, the creator god, slays the great sea monster Tiamat, rips open her carcass, and from her blood and guts creates the world. It's like, well, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> yeah. sounds like a movie. Yeah. Um, the Bible doesn't have anything like that. There's no conflict in the Bible. There's no threat to the hegemony of God. He is totally supreme. And in fact, not only supreme, he's alone. There's nobody else. And that's so different. And I think a lot of times people, especially in the academic community, want to look at the biblical creation account and compare it to these other ancient Near Eastern accounts and talk about their similarities. And to do that is, is fun and legitimate. And I ask my students to do that sometimes. But it ignores that the differences really make the difference. And I think that the after the kind kind of stuff is part of that difference, that God creates these things so that they can reproduce according to whatever kind that is. Right. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what all that means, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, uh, did God create the varieties of animal life that we see today? Well, yes and no. No, he may not have created them directly, but he created these kinds with the ability to produce all of that variety. So there's a simplicity that was programmed for variety, I think. Yeah. And that's what the after the kind language is getting at. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, if you look in modern creationist circles, you'll see this ongoing discussion where if you look back at what was present at creation or even at the flood, those creatures might have looked familiar, but were probably quite different from what we have today. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, the common, uh, you know, drawings we have of the ark with the giraffe and all these other creatures sticking off it uh, may not fully represent the the life forms that actually went on to that ark and so what we're what we're saying is that in god's creation the the organisms he created were engineered in such a way that they could give rise to a diversity of different creatures that could adapt to different environments so for instance whatever the original dog was may have looked quite different from dogs today um, surely than some of the breeds that we've made. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, very different, but, you know, may have looked even different from maybe wolves that we think of as being kind of ancestral to a lot of modern dogs. So, um, the same would be true if we look back in history at what horses may have looked like, or, um, even bears and some of these other creatures probably had a bit different appearance in the creation, but yet God created these creatures with um, this this innate ability to adapt, and and we're seeing that there are a lot of creationists looking at that today, trying to understand the adaptability of organisms and how they develop. So, you know, if we were to paint the picture, the the common um, theory would say there's this original life form, and then a branching tree out to all of the life forms we have today. Mm -hmm. The biblical model would instead look like individual trees all having a, individual starting points in the creation week and then giving rise to various branches. And so it's more like an orchard or a forest as opposed to a single tree of life. I um, think this was uh, this is a good time to bring up the terms of micro and macro evolution, okay. right? So, so uh, Darwinian evolution is the theory of macro evolution, yes. right? Where, where you have that single organism that somehow led to all other organisms that have ever existed, right? But Microevolution is what you were talking about, Dr. Deweese, where, you know, we have each of these organisms 
And then through the years, these organisms have been bred or selected or, uh, you know, adapted into the different organisms that we have now. Yeah. You, you mentioned dogs, and I think that's a great example, yeah. right? I mean, you, you can have a Chihuahua or a Great Dane, but if you take a five-year-old, they're still going to say puppy, right? Because they're, it's, it's, they're all dogs, sure. right? Uh, but sure. we, we bred them for different things. You that's know, right. hunting dogs have different purposes than sheep dogs or that's guard right. dogs or, or watch dogs or anything like that. And so, you know, this idea of, of macro evolution where everything came from one thing, yeah. you know, is, is a lot different than what we see actually happening in the world around us. Yeah, when we, when we use the terms, you know, micro versus macro, we're, we're really characterizing something about the extent or the level of change um, that, that is observed or that is possible. And so in general, when we say microevolution on a, on a technical sense, what we're talking about is most commonly changes in gene frequencies. And that doesn't mean a whole lot in general, but the way that it's typically painted is you know, maybe you have a, uh, a population of uh, moths that have one color and then over time they shift to having a different color, right? They're still the same moth, they're just different colors, right? So that would be kind of a micro change where mm -hmm. really they've not really changed anything and genetically a lot of that stuff's still there, uh, but they're changing in color. So there's a phenotype change that we notice that's observable. Um, Macroevolution, mm -hmm. I want you to picture in your mind this concept of how does, let's say, a creature that lives in the water become land dwelling, mm. right? So now we're talking about not just changes in coloration, we've got to have new features, right? Mm. We've got to have limbs that can walk on land and different muscle structure. We've got to have different respiratory structure, probably different, um, you know, uh, digestive structures, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, something different about the skin, because if we're out of the water and not in the water, that's going to change how, um, you know, the surface of the animal um, is affected. So we're talking about lots of major changes have to be accounted for to go from, let's say, a whale to a mammal living on land. Mm -hmm. So just, um, you know, I, I want to put that in the listeners' minds of this, this idea of what types of changes we're talking about. And these are the types of changes we, we cannot observe and we have not right. observed, right? These are things that are proposed and, and required for the idea to be true. Like, this has to have happened, right? Just like we were talking about earlier, like, how the big bang happened well it had to happen right because <laughs> we're here right so so from an evolutionary perspective it had to happen mm -hmm. for their for their idea to be true and so it's kind of taken for granted so yeah i don't know if that's helpful yeah absolutely yeah. you know but and and just talking about life and, and where life came from or or the, you know the origin of new life forms obviously uh we're, we're a little bit uh self-centered right as humans and so we want to think about where humans sure. came from mm -hmm. right if, if, if we want to think about life in general yeah. and, and new life organisms, we want to think about, well, where did we as humans come from? Because as we've That's been right. talking about, you know, if, if we stick to an evolutionary perspective, we're no different than a cow or a snake or a pig. Yeah. We're, we're, we're just the same. We're just, you know, we walk on two legs instead of four slithering on the ground, That's right. you know, but, uh, but the Bible, like Dr. Rogers was pointing out, uh, it really emphasizes the value of humanity because we are the only creatures the Bible says God made in his own image. That's right. And so if we want to talk about where the, uh, where humans came from, well, again, we have these two perspectives, these two different starting points where, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, I don't want to be, believe in God and believe that God created humans. So I'm going to believe uh, that we evolved from that single cell organism over time, mm -hmm. you know, land, in, from the water in, into the land to what humans look like now. And so that's, that's the perspective that a lot of people have. But 
again, the Bible has a very, very different perspective on where humans came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I think probably the biggest difference, right, between the biblical account and what modern scientific you know, hypothesis says is that humans were created, especially in God's image, as one man and one woman, and they gave rise to humanity. Right. That is not the way that it's frequently <laughs> presented. Um, in, in fact, even the old T-shirt that shows like the ape and then it gradually becomes more erect and then it becomes a human being, that's not how most people view it today. Most people think that there was this mass evolution of a, a large group of people all at one time. Mm -hmm. And that's been problematized recently in genetic science, as I understand. That's Dr. DeWeese's department. So, um, but but the idea of a simple God is starting with a man and a woman and giving them an opportunity to live for His glory, apparently forever. And because they mess up, then God has to sort of pivot and uh, provide this plan of salvation or scheme right. of redemption, as it were. And so, the fall in Genesis three becomes part of a major uh, thrust in biblical theology of we need a savior because Adam in in Hebrew Adam means mankind, humanity. And so there's sort of this archetypal essence to the story. Whenever Adam sins, humanity sins as well. Not because we inherit Adam's sin, but because he represents all of us. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter five as well. Um, but it's a very different portrait than what you get in the naturalistic science, which has no ethics whatsoever. Right. Right. It's just it, you know, maybe 10,000 original human-like creatures evolved all at once. And then that gave rise to uh, the rest of the diversity of humanity as we see it today. So yeah. why don't you yeah. take the scientific part well, of that's, that? That's mm -hmm. it. That's the, so that's what we would call kind of the neo-Darwinian picture is that as that branching single tree of life was making its way and making these various branches along what we might call the primate branch, there was a offshoot that eventually became humanity. And the, the common thought is that when organisms evolve in the neo-Darwinian sense, it's not one organism, one animal, it's, it's a population where all as a population things are changing and they're giving rise to these offspring that are gradually changing. And so eventually you get to this, I guess, some semi pre-human population that becomes human. I don't know if that, what that implies about humanity, if there was, you know, pre-human, human crossover, like I'm not sure what that means, right? But that's, that's something to consider that it's very different than the biblical model. That's why we're always looking for yes. the missing links, right? That's right. The, the That's right. links between what wasn't human to what is human. That's right. Yeah. And, and which are, doesn't exist, apparently. Well, I mean, no, it's it, very hard right, to find. Right. From a biblical perspective, we would say they don't exist. They're yeah, not real. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we won't find them. But we do see we do see ancient humans that maybe look quite different from us, like Neanderthals. Uh, up until very recently, people really questioned who are these, what are they, what, you know, but I think what we're really seeing is that Neanderthals represent uh, a, you know, humans that perhaps were a part of a particular population. Uh, maybe they're inbred, maybe not. But they turns out that depending upon the genetic ancestry things that you do these days, you can find out how, what percent Neanderthal DNA you have, in you, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. I don't know exactly what that, you know, how to describe what that means, but um, you know, it is something that's out there. But what we see in science, and here's here's the cool thing, is that, you know, while while science has been telling us, or at least one interpretation, one framework for interpreting the evidence has been saying, 
hey, humanity came from apes, here it is, and here's the evidence, and here's the genetics, and so forth. What we're seeing over the last probably five, six, seven years is, is actually a march closer to a biblical model where people are saying, you know, it, it wouldn't have to be a population of 10,000. In fact, there could have been a much smaller population. And so, in fact, one of the latest models I saw took that number down to about 1,000. And they said, when you look at the math, statistically, there's no difference between two individuals or 1,000 individuals. They just mm -hmm. used 1,000 in the paper. So it's kind of <laughs> interesting to think about, like, okay, when you collapse all this down and you look at the genetic models, you could get modern human genetics in relatively short order. Mm -hmm. it, it would not require huge populations. It would not require vast amounts of years. What it would require from our perspective as creationists is to think of Adam and Eve not as genetic clones, but maybe somewhat as genetically uh, distinct, independent, so that maybe Adam's uh, versions of genes that he had and Eve's versions of genes that she had were different so that their children then could give rise to a diversity of different um, possibilities. And so it's, it, again, just like with the uh, other organisms, so too with humanity, God programmed within us this ability to diversify, yeah. uh, which is really interesting to think about um, God creating things with the ability to become something a little bit different, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, there appear to be limits to that. That's not a limitless change, right? That's mm -hmm. not give it enough time, it'll become something different. But it is saying that if you look across humanity, there's a lot of difference, yeah. right? We've got differences in height and hair color, eye color, skin tone, so mm -hmm. forth. You know, body structures are different. Um, there's people that are really, really tiny, and there's people that are really, really huge. Mm -hmm. uh, but yet they're all humans. Yeah. And so God has built that into uh, and designed that into the system, which is really, really fascinating. So uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting looking at that. You know, I always find it funny looking at pictures of athletes, especially like football players. Right. And you, you may have a kicker and you may have a lineman standing next to each other. And the kicker's like five, five, 150 pounds. And the, the lineman's like three, seven, you know, 360 or six, six, seven, 360. <laughs> yeah. uh, be a pretty, pretty difficult to be offensive yeah. lineman yeah, at three, three seven. seven. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny that both of those people are professional athletes at the same sport. Sure. But like you, like you're saying, it's because they are different, right? They're just different enough to where they have different skills and different abilities that allow them to compete in that sport at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just like with any, any other animal, there's that diversity there. You know, we're not all, you know, the same. We're, we're unique. And, and just like what we were talking about earlier with David and with Jeremiah, God has a plan for each individual person. And we don't have that if we stick to the evolutionary model. We don't have a plan. We don't have a purpose. We don't have a designer. We're just kind of here and we're different from not only everything else on the earth, but every other, you know, organism within our own species, so to speak, we're, we're different for really no, no good reason, unless we have a designer who made us that way. Yeah. We haven't mentioned this yet, but, and, and I'm not sure I understand everything that it implies, but the image of God being given to human beings, uh, it helps to explain a lot of things that identify humans as different from animals, such as rationality, such as uh, consciousness, right? self-awareness. Uh, I I don't know to what extent my dog at home has self awareness, right? Uh, or I I, I mean uh, I know my dog is irrational in a lot of ways. There th these animalistic instincts that drive my dog are not what drive me. Mm -hmm. And so there there's something there's a tradition in fact about interpreting the image of God simply by saying what do humans have that animals don't? Well, that's the image of God. Now it's probably not quite that simple, uh, but 
it does show that God has given humanity something that's a little different mm -hmm. than what the evolutionary system can account for. And so with the origins of humanity, it's quite literally God who gave us not only our physical essence, but also this emotional and rational nature mm -hmm. that isn't shared by anything else. Mm -hmm. And to me, if I were just basing it on what I would rather believe, right? I would much rather believe that than the evolutionary system, which right. says, you know, I'm just junk that got kicked out of the system yeah. or I survived all the changes. Mm -hmm. Lucky you, I won the ovarian lottery. <laughs> <Right>. you <know? laughs> well, and, and to that point, the difference between human learning and action and let's say what you could teach your dog and some of these things, it's, it's not, it's not trivial, right? This right. is significant. And um, it implies that there's something unique about humanity, the way we were designed, the structure of our brains, uh, the abilities that God endowed us with. I mean, he designed us to work, mm -hmm. right? He designed us with hands and feet and arms and all these features, but also the ability to think and to reason, um, you know, that, that says something about what God meant by his image. Yeah. Right? He was the original creator and in, in a sense made things that could also create. It's amazing how from everything that we've discussed so far from creation to, uh, you know, even us as humans, how we came about. It's amazing how the science really complements the Bible. If we take away the presuppositions, if we take yes. away the, the things that we think is true and we, we start trying to justify um, what we believe is true with the facts, you know, if we just let the facts speak for themselves, the, the science really complements what scripture has to say and whatnot. And so I really appreciate both of you um, sharing this, uh, this complex, um, you know, understanding in a way of how the Bible um, and science really work together hand in hand, um, because from face value, um, or at least how the world would like to interpret it, we see that it's either one or the other. There is no uh, connection between both, but uh, y'all done a wonderful job at connecting the two together and figuring out how these two uh, really work together. So, um, and obviously, you know, like we said earlier in the show, we're not going to be able to touch on everything here in this episode. Uh, by no means did we even scratch the surface. <laughs> there, there's a lot more that could be said, a lot, maybe a lot more that should have been said right. even in this episode. But uh, I, I, like Walker said, I appreciate uh, Dr. Rogers and Dr. DeWeese coming on the show and, and helping us, you know, talk about this, at least on a ground level. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously there's a lot more than just the tip of the iceberg here. Mm -hmm. uh, but we encourage you guys at home to to check out uh, any research that you want, you know, uh, there's a lot of, like we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of scholars and a lot of scientists out there who believe that the Bible and science is, uh, the, that the Bible and science not only can work together, but does work mm -hmm. together. And so we encourage you guys to, to go out there and to do some research on that. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. DeWeese mentioned a couple names earlier that we'll make mm -hmm. sure we include in the show, show, uh, show link that you guys can look at and, uh, and try and evaluate and you know, just let the facts speak for themselves, like what we've been saying this whole time. Uh, Dr. Rogers, Dr. Weiss, again, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I appreciate you guys taking the time out of your very busy schedules to come out and, and help us with this project. And, uh, Walker, thank you, as always, for all the things that you do behind the scenes. And uh, We thank you guys at home for listening. If you have any questions, you can uh, send them to us. You can contact us at tteoj.com and uh, find different ways to contact us on there. If you have a question specifically for Dr. Rogers or Dr. DeWeese, we can make sure that that question gets sent over to them and, uh, and we'll try to have an answer for you if we can. Again, we appreciate you guys all at home. And if there's nothing else that needs to be said, Walker, will you close us out in prayer? 
Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the time that we get to come together, that we get to study your word together, that we get to look at uh, science, we get to look at scripture, we get to see how these two things really work together to prove your majesty, to prove your uh, your power, your glory. We're just so thankful for uh, the beauty that lies within that, the beauty that lies uh, with being able to justify um, your creation, um, our creation as human beings um, with science. And it's just amazing at how all these things really uh, work together. Um, we're just so thankful that uh, we have professors like Dr. Rogers and Dr. DeWeese that are able to come on and share their knowledge with us. Help us to take away something from this episode and apply it to our lives and help us have a better understanding regarding the Bible and science. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.